The, the bad weather this morning, I know that can be uh, slightly difficult to deal with. I actually left my mother country of England to escape this sort of weather, and it uh, seems that it followed me over. Uh, my name is Matthew Feeney. I'm the director of Cato's project on emerging technologies. Uh, I want to welcome those of you who are here in the Hayek Auditorium, but also those of you who are watching online, to today's conference, which aims to tackle the numerous issues associated with emerging aerial technologies. We have experts from academia, industry, government, and think tanks to address supersonic flight, flight sharing, and drones. Of course, one could argue that to describe some of these aerial technologies as emerging is inaccurate. The Wright brothers flew their first airplane almost 115 years ago, and since then, mankind has taken to the air to break the sound barrier and make air travel an ordinary experience within the reach of billions of people, and developed aerial vehicles capable of delivering packages as well as Hellfire missiles in foreign battlefields. Closer to home, small unmanned aircraft are proliferating, raising many opportunities for commerce and law enforcement. Unsurprisingly, entrepreneurs have taken to the internet to make travel, uh, air travel more flexible. Yet while some of the technologies we'll be discussing today have been around for some time, I think it's fair to say that we're at an exciting time when it comes to developments and innovation in aerial technology. Despite these exciting innovations, many emerging technologies remain grounded thanks to regulatory uncertainty, legal opinions, and a lack of legislative action and imagination. In 1947, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier, and the supersonic Concorde was in operation from 1976 to 2003. Yet in 1973, the FAA banned overland civil, civil supersonic flights. So unfortunately, supersonic flights, while a reality, mostly remain in their hangars. This is especially unfortunate as there have been welcome developments in supersonic technology. Boom Technology, uh, a supersonic company, for example, is developing aircraft capable of traveling at twice the speed of sound. Many of us would appreciate shorter air travel times such developments can usher. Flight Now, a company that aims to connect passengers and pilots online, thereby allowing both to share the cost of travel, is unable to operate thanks to an FAA legal interpretation. Never mind that pilots and passengers have been using airport cork boards to do effectively the same thing for years. The Supreme Court declined to hear FlightNow's case involving the FAA, meaning that absent regulatory changes, it cannot operate. While many Americans are used to hearing about drones in foreign policy contexts, these small flying machines will become an increasingly common feature of ordinary American life, providing, provided, of course, the right regulatory environment. Drones in the private sector have much potential, whether it's photography, package delivery, building inspection, architecture, conservation, and media. Yet despite the US being home to some of the world's best technology and best, uh, best technology companies, Amazon tested its first delivery drone in the UK thanks to its relatively lax regulatory environment. Governments are also using drones. Although still relatively rare, drones will become an increasingly common feature of police toolkits. Police drones could be valuable for crime scene investigation, accident inspection, and search and rescue, but we should be aware of the privacy risks associated with police flying eyes in the sky. In addition, police will be increasingly have to deal with criminals using drones. Police use of counter-drone technology raises all sorts of regulatory and safety questions that have yet to be satisfactorily answered. I want to pause for a moment to say that I'm very grateful uh, to today's speakers who have agreed to come and tackle these difficult issues. Uh, I'm especially thankful to those speakers from government agencies and departments. I know that coming to the Cato Institute can sometimes feel like walking into the lion's den, but I do look forward to learning from their expertise and insight. Uh, I invite you all to join the conversation by using the hashtag AerialTechReg, 
And please do take this opportunity to silence or ideally turn off your cell phones. I suppose if you're live tweeting, silence is the best option. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone here that uh, toilets are just around the corner on the ground floor. Uh, and our first panel is on supersonic flight and will be moderated by Caleb Watney from the Austria Institute, who will be joining us very, very shortly. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all for joining us this morning. I think we have a really exciting uh, conference lined up today. Um, this panel is going to be focusing, um, as Matt previewed, on supersonic flight. Um, and we have a really great panel set up today. Uh, we have Alan McQuinn, who is the uh, senior policy analyst at the ITIF. Um, and then we have Richard Abulafia, who is the vice president of analysis at the Teal Group Corporation. Um, and Alan is going to focus on sort of what is the state of play in the regulatory space today um, for supersonic. And Richard's going to focus on some of the market analysis. So we're going to begin uh, with sort of short presentations by both of them on those topics. And then we'll get into uh, the meat of the discussion period. And then we'll close with the audience question and answer. Alan, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, Thank you all for having me today. Uh, like Caleb said, I work for the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, which is a nonprofit here in Washington, DC. Um, so I've been asked to cover kind of the current policy landscape for supersonic flight. Um, and I'm gonna do that in four points. I hope later that we can get into some of like the history of how we got here, some of the concerns, and, and some myth-busting around supersonic flight. Uh, but there are primarily four policy areas that we should focus on. The first is, as uh, Matthew in the introduction announced, there's a uh, current ban in the United States of supersonic flight over land, over Mach uh, 1, which is the, the speed of sound. Um, this was created in 1970, uh, where the FAA used its authority under the Aircraft Noise Abatement Act to basically create a speed limit over land for all aircraft, unless you get special uh, certification. Uh, the second one I'd like to highlight for you is was recently announced by the FAA uh, is two rulemakings that will be, take place in 2019. Uh, so they announced them uh, and they'll come out hopefully next year. The first one is associated with uh, testing of supersonic aircraft, and all it is, is is it clarifies the rules for how you would go about doing that. And the second one is associated uh, with creating noise certification standards at airports, which is, uh, it's just a basic need for supersonic planes in order to, uh, to be able to take off and land. Um, importantly, neither one of these rulemakings will lift the ban. In fact, the FAA specifically said it will not. Um, the third thing I'd like to ha uh, highlight for you today is the FAA Reauthorization Act that is currently in Congress. Um, it, it is expected to pass uh, in September 30th. Whether it does or does not uh, is yet to be seen. We'll find out in the next couple days, uh, seeing as it's been extended many, many times over the last few years. Um, but in both the House and Senate versions of the bill, there was language directing the FAA to lift the ban, lift the speed limit. Um, and create economically reasonable standards um, and technically feasible standards for uh, overland supersonic flight. Um, this is important because without that kind of kick in the tush, uh, the FAA is not gonna do anything. And we saw that with drones uh, and, and just the simple fact that they don't have enough data in order to lift this ban. Um, they could be subject to lawsuits, for example, if they don't. 
The fourth I wanted to talk about is the international standards around noise and around environmental standards for uh, supersonic flight, which is, uh, these standards are created at the International um, Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, and uh, ICAO is slow walking it. Uh, they said that they don't have enough data and they're gathering data and, and these standards won't come out until at least 2025. Uh, which is very slow. It kind of generates this chicken and the egg problem for uh, supersonic flight, because how do you create an airplane if, to meet standards if you don't have standards, right? So those are the four areas uh, of policy contention that are currently going on right now, and I look forward to talking about how we got here and where we're going. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. Um, could we get the presentation uh, yeah, projected? Have... Excellent, Sorry. thank you. Thanks very much. Looks like we're about to play a game of Jeopardy here, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, just let me say, I'm here under slightly false pretenses. I'm not a regulatory guy at all. Uh, I'm here to talk about the market and technical preconditions necessary before we begin to exploit or make use of the fine work being done by people seeking to remove regulatory obstacles to supersonic flight. I don't think, oh, thanks very much. What a good idea. Uh, I don't think there's anybody in the business that doesn't really like the idea of supersonic flight, both as a stimulus to technology, to the market, and of course, just because, hey, it's cool. And uh, we want to be part of, you know, bringing the world closer together. Increasing speeds for Mach 0.83 would be a great way to do that. However, I got a bunch of reservations. I'm going to share them with you. I can only think in PowerPoint for people who have neither power nor point. So uh, bear with me. Okay, you said it was idiot-proof, but you didn't, you didn't reckon with me, obviously. There we go. All right, okay, first of all, when we talk about supersonic flight, we're talking about two extremely different markets. Elasticity, cost sensitivity, all of these things, very different between commercial jet transport, jetliners, and private aviation, business jets. Typical business jet travels with two or three people on board. They don't really care what they're paying, and they have no idea. Very different market, completely different. Uh, second, um, oh my God, this industry, I love my industry. I've been in for th more than three decades. We're death on new market entrance. There are a lot of people who want to break into this business with a new company. Since 1969, exactly two people have succeeded in breaking into this business. One is Honda Jet, because they're owned by Honda. Uh, the second is Cirrus, which is a marvelous company, but they almost went bust until Chinese government money basically rescued them. They are amazing. Um, I was on the Collier Committee this year. They won the Collier Trophy for their new jet. If you're just starting out in this business, well, to be honest, I got a filing cabinet at work filled with brochures and pamphlets from companies that failed. That doesn't mean you can't succeed. You just have to ally or sell yourself to a big aerospace prime or be part of someone bigger like the Chinese government or the, you know, uh, Honda Corporation. They're certainly big. Um, another thing that's been going on is that, frankly, I'm not really convinced the trend is our friend here. Turbine engine design, long story short, since the 1960s has kind of evolved towards the same speed but much more efficient. You'll see some numbers on that in a moment. Supersonics haven't changed all that much. You need to burn a lot of fuel 
Basically, your potential for bypass, the amount of air that goes around the core rather than through the core where it gets burnt with fuel, um, you need to be very low bypass in the supersonic world. So if anything, the cost ratio between supersonic flight and what we enjoy today on Southwest or whichever carrier you choose, that cost inferential's probably gotten worse. Another trend is that when we flew on Concord, we were prisoners in a barca lounger. Um, it was really like that, trust me. I caught the tail end of Concord operations back in the late 90s and enjoyed a lot, except it was this, you know, okay, and you were completely cut off as you were back then. Today, we're moving towards real-time connectivity. I'd be surprised if we don't have holograms on board jets in a couple years. It's really happening that fast. You're no longer a prisoner. Is this reducing the premium needed uh, or the premium of we attach to time? It might be. This is something to think about. Um, another thing is that when you look at new programs in the business of aircraft, there's two things you look for. One is an engine, or at least a roadmap to an engine. Extremely important, and we're not quite there yet with most of the players. Second is a price tag. There is, I'll give uh, a lot of kudos, there's one company, Arion, that has both an engine roadmap and a price tag. No one else, to the best of my knowledge, supersonic business has that yet. So Arion is kind of the base point of reference here when we're comparing everything. Also, there are trade-offs. There's no such thing as a free lunch. In other words, going speedy sounds great, but it's not taking the same thing that we've enjoyed all these years and merely putting faster engines on it. There are trades, as you'll see in a moment. First, a few numbers. This is an industry that is predicated upon cheap. We're a commodity business. That's the airline business. 1959 to very recently yield, that's the amount of cash you crank out of each customer on a per mile basis has gone from about 22 to about five. We're really good at making ourselves cheap. And in large part, this is because of fuel burn reductions and new hyper-efficient engines. All of these hyper-efficient engines are massively unsuited for supersonic travel. Next, airlines are locked in a delicate balance between RASM and CASM. Cost for available uh, seat mile versus revenue for available seat mile. If your cost goes above your RASM, your CASM goes above your RASM, uh, you got a business in a couple years. Instant bankruptcy. In the best of times, your margins are pretty thin. You gotta be real careful about what new technology and equipment you bring on board. So while I'm excited about the prospect of a new fast 40-seat jet that might just be able to skim the cream off of passenger traffic on key routes, if you're an airline, you're watching that real closely and you really don't know. You really don't. The other thing is, oh boy, we, as in the industry of building jets, we are poster children for deflation. Relative to the consumer price index, the real cost of a new jet has been coming down. And go buy one today, please, because they're great value. Um, remarkable. This is really a different, a different scenario. When you get into supersonics, you're being asked to make a quantum leap in terms of your capital cost and the sort of incredible discounts that the world airline industry enjoys in the land of happy subsonic travel just doesn't happen. Okay, let's turn now to business jets. And here's where I'm gonna use the Arion as an example. Because the Arion, again, has two things, an engine, or at least a roadmap to an engine with General Electric, and a price tag, $124 million in today's money. 
The average price for the top half of the business jet market, just looking at green without the fancy interiors, without the holograms, without the air hockey table, is right now almost 60 million. So half the, of what an Arion will cost. Now, the most you can pay for a traditional business jet, unless you're, you know, unless you're Elon Musk and you have your own jetliner, a traditional business jet maxes out now at about 77 million green. Again, a long way from the 124 million. I'll give Arion credit. That price tag reflects reality. A lot of people in this business have an annoying habit of positing a pathetically foolish price tag based upon unrealistic production numbers. We'll sell it to you for $50. If we can build a million, uh, you go bankrupt that way. 124 million reflects a very reasonable world of economics viewpoint. But, oh boy, mind the gap, as our British cousins say. That's still a way off. And it's a little worse than that. Arion gives you a tube, that is to say, your interior comfort, that looks like this. That most expensive jet you can get, the $78 million Global 7000, is a little more than twice as much space as an Arion. An Arion is a very real and accurate depiction of the realities of supersonic travel. Are there some people who are going to say, okay, I'll pay 50% plus more and get less than half the tube because I want to travel at Mach 1.4? I have no doubt that there are. There absolutely are those people. Is this a visa, you know, visa-free process of suddenly catering to the world of people who want to go supersonics like you and me? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Seriously, no. This is a land of completely different economics. We'll see if it happens. Anyway, thanks for my quick rundown, listening to my quick rundown of the economics of it all. I know. Thank you for both of those presentations. I think that's a helpful kind of background as we're thinking about this market. Now, I think when most people think about supersonic flight, probably the example that comes to mind is the Concorde. Uh, that's certainly the most famous one, the one that has gotten the most attention. Uh, but Famously, the Concorde is no longer operating. Uh, so, Alan, do you want to start us off? Why did the Concorde fail, and what lessons can we learn from that? Sure. Um, and as we see, uh, as Richard alluded to, uh, there has been uh, 50 years of innovation around jet engines, right? With the idea that there is a speed limit, right? That you can't go over land. Uh, the Concorde... Uh, was a loud, inefficient aircraft that went about Mach 2, uh, two times the speed of sound. Um, it was the only successful one. There was, only a, there was a couple other ones, the um, Boeing 7, uh, 2707, which just failed out of production. Um, and then there was the Soviet 2144. And all of these were big government investments where they were trying to get geopolitical power uh, to suit a very specific market need. This wasn't ever really a free market kind of thing. Right? Um, so what caused this all to fall apart? I would contend that one of the major things that uh, was the restricted market that came with an overland ban of supersonic flight. Um, because it was able, it effectively reduced the, the flight path between, uh, like Richard alluded to, only the cream of the, uh, across the Atlantic, for example, from New York to, uh, uh, to London. Um, 
And this, uh, what happened to cause the supersonic ban uh, uh, over land? There was primarily two major factors. Uh, the anti-Concord project, which rose, rose up against the environmental concerns um, around the Concord. And it, indeed, as Richard alluded to, um, the Concord was incredibly inefficient. It ran about four times as much gas as uh, a normal subsonic jetliner. Um, and, and so they, they created, uh, it was primarily around environmentalism, um, that they said that it would destroy the upper atmosphere, that it was inefficient, that it would shatter windows, and that it would uh, cause incredibly loud noises. Like they took out an uh, a, uh, ad on the front page of the New York Times, that basically, or on an entire page of the New York Times, that basically said, this will be the loudest noise you have ever heard. Um, it's, it is pretty loud, right? But it's, it's equivalent to, you know, like a motorcycle. Um, and it goes by in half a second. Uh, at least the, the Concord did. So another thing that kind of galvanized public support, uh, galvanized public opposition to supersonic flights here in the U.S. was uh, this, these tests that took place over Oklahoma City in 1964, in which the the FAA, the NASA, and uh, from help of the Air Force, basically flew. Uh, six to eight times over Oklahoma City, a, a low, very loud boom, equivalent to roughly a, a Concord, six times a day for six months. Um, and even then, only 73, or 73% of the population reported that it was, uh, it was fine. They didn't, it didn't really bother them. The 20% that did uh, bother them found it to be a, a minor nuisance. Uh, nevertheless, this kind of galvanized public opposition that these were loud noises, there was reports that it was shattering windows, which were uncorroborated, um, and the FAA moved to ban uh, it over land based on those two concerns. Um, we can get into whether those were real or not. Uh, especially the environmental concerns, but yeah. yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on why the Concorde failed? Um, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me for this, but uh, in advance. But uh, yeah, I, I'm afraid I disagree with uh, the, the, I don't think it had anything to do with regulation, public perception, it was pure economics. Take you back in time. It's 1960-something, and you have the British state-owned aircraft firm, which does not worry about making profits. You have the French state-owned aircraft firm, which does not worry about making profits. And they are given all the money in the world to develop these jets. Then they're given all the money in the world to build them. And then you have the state-owned airline, Britain, does not need to worry about making profits. The state-owned airline of France does not need to worry about making profits. Said, how many do you want? And they both say, yeah, we can take six and they each take six. And that's a realistic depiction of what they could get in terms of traffic. Did any of you have to do with overland? You know, hey, conceivably, can't rule it out. But for decades to come, if you were traveling on probably the single most lucrative air routes in the world, New York, Paris, New York, London, nothing stopped you from taking a flight on a plane that had already been paid for, completely amortized. It was like starting a leasing business with Rolls Royces given to you, like, go start a car leasing company with these free Rolls Royces. Okay, what's my realistic price for it, given insurance, given whatever? No one seems to be lining up, and it was the same with Concord. Uh, these things were money losers consistently, even on these incredible air routes, and they were never restricted from operating on the most lucrative air routes in the world. Would it have been better if they could have exploited something overland? Yeah, it would have helped, but really, these were, this is where you make money. And they were losing money with six each at the best of times given to them free. Circa the mid-1990s, the U.S. is considering the HSET program. 
The Economist magazine had probably the world's best headline on the subject ever in the popular press, which was Mach 2, taxpayer zero. Yeah, right? But then it's, it's absolutely true, but they absolutely stopped innovating on this. Good they point. Didn't, they Good didn't point. try to make the planes more efficient. And as we know, fuel prices and fuel volatility dictate a lot of how airliners think and spend. And these things ran, like I said, four times uh, more inefficient than other airplanes. They didn't spend any time clarifying the design of the aircraft to reduce the boom or improve efficiency. They didn't invest in any new technologies. They were the same thing because it was dictated by a government body of between France and the UK of, 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 of innovation by absurd committee. And then they just stopped innovating. And they stopped innovating in 1965. And then we have 40 years plus of where, where our, the fastest we went was in 1976, where we went Mach 3, which was, it was not a civilian flight, obviously. But like that is where we stopped. And we have had zero innovation ever since. And to your point about, you know, uh, uh, creating these types of, of, of engines, like if we were to create a market in, you know, 10, 15 years, we can move towards something like a variable cycle engine, where you can create uh, efficiencies both at subsonic and supersonic speed for these aircraft. But we haven't put any money into it for those reasons. I agree completely. There's lots of potential here to discuss, but <laughs> we're merely talking about the Concorde. Yes, we are talking about the Concorde. And that's, that's why it failed. Because it really liked to drink fuel. It really, really liked <laughs> to drink fuel. And it was really expensive. No, that's helpful. I, I want to go back a little bit to what you were talking earlier with the booms. And I know there are all these tests over Oklahoma City and a lot of uh, public resentment that was stoked around that. And it seems like there's a lot of ambiguity and I guess public myths around how loud actually are sonic booms. So if we're having a new revival of supersonic flight, should I replace all my glassware with plastic cups? Is that gonna help me stay safe? How loud are sonic booms actually? Yeah, so there's, you know, there's a lot of myths, uh, myths around sonic booms. Um, just to start, the, 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 the speed limit over Mach 1 doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for one reason. Um, although most planes won't fly at Mach 1 or even Mach 2, they'll probably go between 0.99 and 0.14 because that's it has to do with drag. Um, flying at Mach 1.2 at 35,000 feet, which is like 20,000 feet under where some of these planes want to fly, the boom won't even reach the ground. No one will hear it. Uh, so creating this kind of arbitrary uh, speed limit doesn't really make sense if you're actually trying to mitigate boom. Um, it, when it comes to some of the modern-day uh, airplanes, uh, they, it, it helps to compare them to uh, at least the estimates for what they could sound like um, to other noises, right? So they use new composite materials and, and, and uh, wind developed. And... Uh, computer-generated uh, models and designs to create them and make them more efficient. And we haven't seen them yet, so this is all caveated. Mm. Uh, but uh, at least uh, the Lockheed Martin uh, is creating a low-boom simulator that goes about 1.4, Mach 1.4 um, at 55,000 feet, and that sells like a dull heartbeat, like a thump-thump. Uh, your uh, uh, your uh, dryer downstairs, right? It's not as loud. Uh, boom technologies, and again, caveated that they haven't created anything. They're running their first demonstrator next year. Uh, estimates that they can run um, a at 10% faster than the Concorde, but at 30% quieter, uh, which would be uh, equivalent to you know being next to a um, 
being next to a uh, blender, for example. And we have to consider that these booms go by in half a second. And so it's a percussive uh, pop, but it's, it's, it's really, uh, when we're creating certain standards, we should base them on noises that we already deal with and contend with. Yeah. Um, it, so, so it sounds like there's been a lot of recent innovation in terms of, you know, uh, creating la or models of what the airplane could look like to you know, minimize the, the sound of the, the boom. Um, and we haven't really seen like, what it can do in terms of you know, 40 years of innovation uh, for you know, reducing fuel consumption and other forms of sort of the, trying to make it more economical. Mm. Is there a good reason for thinking that you know, if we were to combine the last 40 years of aeronautics insights to you know, the Concorde or the newest supersonic flights that that could be a more economical model? It's really problematic. I mean, first of all, a lot of what we've got in this industry is based upon scale. The kind of economies of scale you're just not going to see here. The second is that propulsion has moved towards more and more efficient, as I mentioned before, high bypass. Typically, uh, you know, at the time of Concorde, take you back, um, commercial baseline engines were one-to-one -one bypass, and Concorde was a little less than that. You started to see the advent of high-bypass turbofans around the time Concorde entered service. Those were about four or five to one. Today's commercial jet engines, the very best that are just coming online, are 11 or 12 to one. That is to say, there's an awful lot of air not being burned going around. That makes them quieter, much more efficient. Um, you know, a supersonic engine still needs to be around uh, one to one. Uh, now, variable cycle, that's intriguing. Could we harvest that? Yeah, the Air Force has looked at variable cycle many times over the years, um, kind of pulled back from that as being a bit too expensive, a bit too complex, but it might just surface again as a very promising technology. Is it available for today's use? I don't think so. What we're looking at doing today is taking an off-the-shelf engine, it's probably what Ariane's gonna do, I'm sure what Boom is gonna do, um, and simply refanning it to a much smaller fan so you get a much lower bypass ratio. Uh, you know, when Boom flew their demonstrator back a couple years ago, they just, they punted on the issue. They used a 50-year-old engine just to say they had an engine. They're proving an airframe, which is, which is great. But really, the key enabling technology here is, is the engine. And that's true. Um, and, but again, we won't see innovation in this for a while um, until we're able to, at least I contend, until we're able to create a market around it. Um, and start getting money infused into these things. Like, the, the big players are all looking at supersonic flight, at least uh, on the, the margins. Uh, but where we're seeing disruption, at least right now, is with these small players. And whether they are able to, pardon the pun, take off or not, it, it really, really will depend on creating standards for what uh, can happen today. And by, and, and by the concerns of yore, what, what sunk the Concorde over land, um, was uh, is the idea that uh, there are environmental concerns and noise concerns, and those go away if you actually look at the scientific research. A lot of them do. Let's dive into that a little bit more. Um, so I know that you know, with all of the uh, action around potentially lifting the supersonic uh, ban over land, there's been environmental groups that have been concerned about uh, you know what the effect of that on the environment would be. Can you give us a brief rundown of what their concerns are and whether they're valid? Sure, sure. Um, 
So uh, after when it looked like we might lift up uh, the ban over land here in the U.S., a few folks re uh, wrote uh, a lot of op-eds in the, the New York Times and released, uh, released a report. Um, Carl Pope from uh, the ex executive director of uh, the Sierra Club was one of them, uh, and he, he primarily cited uh, that, that these vehicles are inefficient and they could lead to catastrophic ozone loss. Um, and then there was another report from uh, the ICCT, the International Council on, uh, on Clean Transportation, that uh, tried to estimate based on one of Boom's marketing models uh, whether or not these things would actually be efficient or not. Um, and so we'll take both claims first. First, the ozone loss is is it's been debunked. Um, in the in the 70s, uh, scientists realized that after the uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S. conducted uh, nuclear bomb tests that uh, basically generated enough uh, uh, emissions or, or enough of this uh, the same kind of chemical released by supersonic uh, jets. To basically, I think the quote was 500. Concords running seven hours a day for five years with each of those tests. And there was no ozone loss. Um, we also know that uh, at least uh, supersonic planes going uh, create as much ozone as they rise to 55,000 feet as, as they offset. So they're essentially ozone neutral. So that claim is bunk. Um, emissions, obviously, we have to see where the, the technology goes. Uh, they Traditionally, Concords did run significantly inefficiently. And as Richard has claimed, uh, as cited, that it's likely that the new engines will be less efficient as related to subsonic, uh, com uh, as related to their subsonic uh, counterparts. Now, um, uh, it is also true that totally internationally, uh, emissions from all jets and all aviation accounts for about 2% of emissions worldwide. And these technologies are insanely hard to decarbonize because they rely on the uh, power-dense nature of fossil fuels. So given the fact that they're only 2% of emissions worldwide, they're simply not the main contributor to, to climate change in the transportation sector. Look to carbon. Uh, uh, you can look to um, major transport ships or cars for that if you really want to create these efficiencies. And even if all of this happens and we introduce supersonic flight and it is inefficient, uh, there's an agreement with ICAO uh, called Corsia, which basically states that all international travel, um, after 2020, there can be no net new emissions. This applies to subsonic and supersonic planes, um, and it will take place long before any supersonic plane is, is incorporated. Now, there's, there's some issues around whether, um, uh, if we do lift the ban over land, uh, the, whether this will apply in the, the Paris agreements, because we've obviously backed out of those, and that would apply to domestic aviation. Uh, but that's another issue entirely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and on the the noise limit complaints, so I, I know that you guys have argued that they're having just like a strict uh, ban over supersonic uh, booms over land doesn't make sense. Is there an alternative standard you think that would make more sense, that would be sort of a, a better way of... of you know, recognizing that we don't want, you know, anybody to make as loud noises as they possibly want, you know. So, so how do you strike the balance there? Well, I think um, Eli Dorado and Sam Hammond um, over at the Mercatus Institute released a great report a couple years ago that, that looked at this and, and it basically argued that you would want to create a standard that is lower than the Concorde, right? You want a more, a less of a boom than a Concorde, but still meets the, like, uh, the other sound from other types of, uh, 
noises that we're used to today. You know, less than a jackhammer, but maybe the, 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 as loud as a uh, motorcycle passing by. Um, and it, it just creating an economically reasonable standard that also uh, is technologically feasible and, you know, makes nuisance the, as the same as other types of sounds. That's, yeah. that's what they argue, and I would agree. Richard, I want to dive back into, I think, a trade-off you alluded to in your presentation. Um, sometimes supersonic flight can be uncomfortable. You know, you're usually experiencing more Gs. You're in a uh, smaller environment, uh, and you're paying a lot more. Uh, we, you know, when you could use that same money to invest in, say, better airplane Wi-Fi. You know, I just took a flight back from San Francisco, and my Wi-Fi didn't work at all, and that was really annoying. Um, how would you think about those trade-offs, and what do you think will it, or customers are going to be willing to tolerate? Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely the, the heart of the issue for me because um, you look at the evolution of travel for business travelers over the years, it's, it's night and day. I mean, anyone who's ever flown on one of the better premium carriers knows business class these, uh, these days is, you know, you know, it's no longer the Barco lounge here and a shared video screen and a TV dinner. It is now a lie flat seat in your own pod with instant Wi-Fi connections and nice people bringing you drinks at all times. It's, it's really night and day and, oh good, my children aren't screaming at me. This, I think I'll stay here. Um, <laughs> this is really nice. Uh, and the other thing is you're not cut off. You've got, you know, where are you racing to? Um, this isn't doing the market any favors, this, this technological trend towards connectivity and comfort, the two Cs, if you will. Um, and that's why the more I look at this market, the more I'm convinced it's a business jet market. Now, the other thing about business jet markets is it tends to color everything else because business jet utilization, you know, uh, fitting an Alice point, you know, tends to be a lot less of, and, and less of an environmental concern. Typical jetliner gets operated thousands of hours per year. A business jet in this class, if it gets operated 400, 500 hours a year, you know, that's, that's, that's impressive. So in other words, I tend to think it becomes less of an issue. But everything we're saying, just looking at the, the airline side of things, yeah, I mean, I just improve the quality of product. The, the other thing is that from your standard airline, the people up front in those lovely pods, the ones you kind of feel this, you know, I, I, you know when I travel on my own nickel, I assure you I'm with the self-loading cargo in the back of the plane, and you feel this sort of, you know, Bolshevik anger. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they're paying for the airline. They're paying for you. You're, you're a, we're, we're, we in the back, we're, we're a dead loss. The guys up front, the women up front, they're, they're paying the bills. So that's why they're catering to you. That's why they're bending over backwards and giving you the latest in quilt technology and whatever else. So I'm not so sure that this, this, uh, this, this, this paradigm breaks anytime soon. Um, to follow up on that point, though, um, in the long run, and we're talking decades out, right? Like what Richard has been alluding to and I've been trying to uh, say as well. Uh, in the long run, like while this technology will primarily be for very rich folks in the beginning, like I think Boom's cheapest tickets, like $4,000 or something is what they estimate. We'll see if that works. Um, yeah, uh, we'll, see, we'll see if that works. Um, but... Uh, in the long run, like what we've seen with other technologies, whether it is the iPhone or whether it is uh, vehicles, uh, uh, 
initially rich folks are the people that buy it and they help create a market and generate efficiencies and, and create a uh, market of scale or economies of scale and eventually other folks are able to participate. And there is radical potential for supersonic uh, air travel that if we're able to get the creature comforts right in a while from now, like not five years, maybe 20, maybe 30, um, for this same thing to happen. Uh, we're, we're looking at the same thing. It's always slower in transportation, right? Look at the Tesla Roadster. Um, that was a very expensive vehicle. And now they're trying to introduce, hopefully one of these years, uh, a more economical model for uh, everyone else. Yeah. Why does speed matter? Like, did, why does it matter that we get to a place, you know, two hours faster than we otherwise would have? I know, you know, I've some, seen some people argue that there's really large uh, economic growth effects from you know, being able to travel to a place in a day and then come back to still be able to tuck your kids in at night. Um, does that make it worth it? Does that make all these other trade-offs seem maybe more plausible? I don't know because, I mean, that's, that's it. Connectivity and comfort, but you also have one of the biggest trade-offs is range. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's unrealistic to expect better than transatlantic. Trans-Pacific, that's going to be a very long time coming. The other day, uh, free advertisement, they did not pay me for this, but uh, Cathay Pacific just started Washington's first nonstop to Hong Kong. I mean, this is all new. This is all very new. I'm very happy to be able to do this. You know what? It's not the worst thing in the world to have to stop and refuel in Hawaii, but you have to. <laughs> and with supersonics. And yeah. that kind of cuts back on the speed thing. You have to decelerate, take off, climb, whatever else, fuel. Um, so we're really talking about a transatlantic market here. Even when we get to cross land, which, yeah, technologically, you're right. Technologically, there's no reason it can't happen. Regular, no reason it can't happen. What's that market? It's kind of a Southwest market. I mean... D.C. to L.A. in two hours? D.C. to L.A. in two hours. You know what? You go to the front of these jets and you talk to the people there. How many are in first class on an upgrade? <laughs> Guilty as charged. Very few people actually pay that kind of cash. There are bankers, you know, we all remember, remember the classic late 90s nerd bird that flew between uh, Dallas and Sunnyvale, you know, tech corridor to tech corridor. Um, even that never had the kind of yields you need to get to supersonic. So I, I like the idea, but you're still talking about a tiny minority of travel. Perhaps. Uh, again, we have to help create that market and see if it works. So. Uh, we're a ways off from that. Um, I would also add, um, there's a lot of research that looks at how improving the efficiencies of travel also boosts uh, trade, for example. Like after World War II, uh, when we moved to jet propulsion from propellers, we saw a 700% increase in US travel abroad. Um, there's other research that shows that like, when you increase, um, I think it's from Jennifer Poole over at American, actually, when you, when you increase uh, the amount of folks coming here by 10%, um, you also in, increase exports by, you know, 0.13% uh, or something, or 1.3%. So it's, there is research there that, um, but again, we're going to have to see how this shakes out. And the only way we can see how this shakes out, at least in my opinion, is to open up more opportunities uh, for this market to take place and take hold, um, which means an overlanding, uh, lifting of the ban. That makes a lot of sense to me, especially the part about serving as a stimulus to trade. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
I want to shift a little bit to sort of the international aspect here, because obviously, if you're you know trying to fly uh, transatlantic, transpacific, you know uh, cross-continental uh, flights, that requires a lot of coordination in aerospace laws across different countries. Mm. Um, so, what does that space look like right now? Has has there been coordination in terms of making sure that you can fly supersonic over large parts of the world? Yeah, uh, it, those are set by uh, ICAO, um, and like I talked about earlier, it, they're kind of slow walking any noise or emission standards for uh, supersonic flight. The, the major sticking point is really between the US and the EU when it comes to this, because EU is a lot more temperamental about noise. Um, and so the, while the US wants to create two standards, one for subsonic, one for supersonic, um, that would, you know, be based on the realities that the new technology will need in order to Again, sorry, take off. Um, <laughs> uh, the EU wants a single set of standards for subsonic planes uh, and supersonic, and that doesn't really make sense um, when you're looking at the technology. Um, so I just want to make sure, are we agreed that on, on the policy side, is there any fundamental disagreement here? I know there's you know, disagreements about what the actual market share could look like, but would you mostly agree that we should you know, remove the supersonic uh, land ban and it, the other things that Alan mentioned? Well, I think there are ways towards that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the real issue here is, um, I mean, first of all, in principle, yes. Uh, second of all, I think it needs to be done in tandem. Technology development needs to have clear milestones in terms of you know, goal, technological goals, emissions goals, yeah. uh, boom goals. But there's no reason that this can't be done with uh, people developing technology, working in tandem with regulators to come up with standards that, and, and I, think, I think if we were moving towards that, I, I actually have every confidence that that would happen. One of the things that I just, picking up off those, com uh, those comments, um, that would be useful here in the US is, is um, you know, giving the FAA another mission, in addition to its safety mission, to help advance technologies uh, and test technologies and use technologies uh, to make US uh, aviation more competitive. Uh, and doing that, um, in addition to its safety mission, would, it would mean that it would have to uh, think about these, competing in, uh, these competitive interests as it rolls out rules for, you know, like drones, where it doesn't have to get pushed by Congress to do it, as it rolls out rules for um, supersonic flight. If the technology is there, it can, it can be monitored and followed up. But this, it, right now, the agency does not have this mission at all. Well, one last question before we open up uh, to audience question and answer. Um, when you're thinking 20, 30 years out about what the future of you know, American transportation looks like, in particular aerospace transportation, um, is supersonic the main technology? Are there any other technologies that we're missing out on? Or does it just you know, continue to be subsonic flights that become more and more luxurious with better and better connectivity? One of the things that's really cool, um, and this is completely off, this, uh, off topic, but it's like um, how we're, we're getting closer to being able to create like electronic puddle jumpers like the little tiny flights that you can get from one place to another place very efficiently with electricity. Um, and I think that maybe will come up as uh, later on in the day. But uh, by generating efficiencies in, in like one side, you can hopefully overall across supersonic, across subsonic, and these little things, like you can generate uh, efficiencies uh, across the entire aviation spectrum. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it could be that we see a bifurcated world where we get on the lower cost side slower because <laughs> electrical powered plant electric or hybrid planes technically are slower nine times out of 10 um, versus a more elite group that travels fast. It sounds a little dystopian, but it, it might be the way things evolve. Um, I'm intrigued by the idea of just skipping a generation, being done with the supersonic stuff and going to hypersonic. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that has its appeal too. And you know, we've been talking about that since the Reagan days, the Orient Express, you know, New York to Tokyo and you know, five seconds or whatever. Um, there's, there's a lot of very big obstacles technologically, you know, creating a ramjet and a scramjet uh, or a scramjet. I mean, this is, it's really tough to create. And this isn't a question of adapting technology from the military world, transferring it over to the civil world. This is coming up with a new way, as, as, they, as they joke, of lighting a match in a hurricane and hoping it doesn't go out. Um, but if we get there, oh boy, that'd be great. I think we all want that. And single stage to orbit, you know, the space plane that we've had around as a concept for many decades. I'm kind of intrigued by that because um, at, at the end of the day, it would be such a quantum leap in terms of connectivity that it might be easier to charge that premium rather than living in a world where we know it's going to be more expensive and we know there'll be some regulatory issues, rightly or wrongly, and we know that the commercial world is coming up with really delightful ways of occupying our time well in the air <laughs> at a slightly uh, slower speed. So I'm kind of intrigued by the skip a generation thing. Yeah, baby steps, I think. Yeah, maybe that. Well, we're ready uh, to open up for question and answer. I think there should be a microphone coming. I didn't actually come here expecting to do much speaking, but I do have, um, <coughs> I have a, a little um, axe to grind. Or a, a, the, the CEO of Boom, went to Carnegie Mellon with my son, and he's a friend of mine. So I know I have read quite a lot about what he is doing. My understanding is he wants to have the FAA bring down the noise requirements instead of the speed requirements, so that no matter how fast you go, as long as you don't make too much noise, you'll be all right. Another thing, He's planning on going 2.2 Mach and charging about what business class passengers pay for their uh, now less than 2.2 Mach. Um, and also, I've heard about other planes which are being uh, in the works that are smaller and slower than his. He will hold 55 passengers. These others hold 12, 15, something like that. So I don't see any real competition between him and anybody else coming up at all. Now, maybe I've missed something. No, no, I mean, look, I, I, I like his idea. This industry is in part predicated upon people adding value with new inventions. We can't begin to have the conversation about economics, airfares, anything, until we have an engine. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the airframe. It's got nothing to do with the regulations. Fuel burn and therefore economics is determined by engine. Now, it could be that tomorrow he comes up with an engine or somebody develops an engine for him, in which case I will say, I cannot wait. But we can't have the conversation until he has an engine. And 
um, they've already said, at least uh, to, to trade press, that they think that they can get parity with uh, subsonic planes in the future, but they're only built, building a demonstrator now. So I, I think the, uh, we should be cognizant of where they are um, after the demonstrator flight and like what the actual passenger plane will look like before we jump to conclusions. You mentioned uh, some of the fundamentals is about the engine itself, and it's great to see that the engine is getting more efficient, uh, yet it's still operating on a hydrocarbon fuel. Mm. What's the technology around the fuel itself as far as changes around that goes, and what kind of evolution are, are we looking at for, for both that and, of course, then you're looking at infrastructure, then you'd have to change the engines themselves once you change the fuels and so on. Um, do you want me to, or do you want to? If you'd like. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, for aviation, the fuel necessary will have to be uh, very energy dense, which requires fossil fuels until we create some sort of alternative energy that is as strong, which, which is why the only electric planes that we're seeing today are very small, very slow planes. Um, so just jumping out like into the future, what we're going to be doing with supersonic flight is, is making the, the frame more efficient and making the engine more efficient, which it'll probably still run on fossil fuels for the foreseeable future, but like variable cycle wings where uh, this is, you know, far out in the future, but like where the airplane is able to change its shape, the shape of its wings to be, make it more efficient depending on how fast it's going, or the cycle, the, the engine, which is able to, again, change based on how it's fast it's going to make it more efficient. Um, but, but we're looking at that kind of margin, right? We're not really looking at changing the fuel as of yet until someone invents a, a brand new fuel. Do you have anything to add? I strongly, strongly agree. I, I, I love the question. I just regret to say that we're probably the last part of the economy that uses uh, decaying dinosaurs. Um, and, but there are a lot of baby steps on the way there. Uh, you know, hybrid, hybrid propulsion, the idea of having a central turbine driving independent propellers or fans or whatever else. A lot of promise there, a lot, you know, but in terms of going fast, yeah, energy density argues, I'm afraid, uh, that for the foreseeable future, we just need hydrocarbons. Hi, um, Richard was giving me flashbacks uh, talking about National Aerospace Plane and Orient Express. Um, <laughs> A couple of observations. One is it. Um, I think that the, you know, fuel efficiency of the of the of the engine has been one thing contributing to lower costs in the airline industry, um, but it's also packing people in tighter than ever before. Um, the seats on a triple seven uh, seven eight seven today are narrower than they were on a seven zero seven sixty years ago. Um, they're much better at selling at high load factors. They. Um, they don't give away baggage for free. They don't give away anything for free, um, and have you know cut a lot of indirect costs. And I think that's probably changed the market more than anything else. Um, so it it does come back to the question of you know is it it all comes back to value value of speed, and with reference to the comments about connectivity, you know okay you're not out of touch, so saving speed is less valuable. I think it also comes down to the sort of 
quantum jumps it makes possible if you go faster in terms of in terms of schedule. Um, for example, you know, just traveling transcontinental um, eastbound today, you've got a choice between spending the entire day in the in travel, um, or you can spend the night in travel. Neither of those is optimum. Um, if you actually had a supersonic transcontinental, then you know, in theory, you could leave um, Los Angeles late afternoon and get get to the East Coast. I mean, late in the evening, but not after midnight. And that's a complicated issue. We had tremendous fun debating that when we were bringing Concorde into service. Um, and, but I think it's worth looking at because I think that is actually one of the major changes it makes possible to air travel. Yeah, uh, Bill Sweeten, everybody, has written an awful lot of great books on the subject of everything from space planes to supersonic travel to most of all stealth airplanes. So uh, thanks for your question, Bill. Um, First of all, on the issue of critical mass, I mean, yeah, I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, and it gets back to the elasticity uh, of, of demand you typically see in the airline business. Since we had internet pricing, you've had this ugly phenomenon, the arrival of ultra low cost carriers. And everyone gets on the web to book a ticket to somewhere and they complain about their increasingly small, or as you cram them in, seat pitches going down to, I think about, you know, just enough to get my knees. And um, they, they, they just book on the lowest fare, regardless. And it's amazing how many people who are upper middle class or, or, or even wealthy who still go for the lowest fare. We are addicted to cheap in this business, and it's on the basis of that critical mass. And, He's the, voice, in favor of and the voice of Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the... Um, the other, the other point um, you made about, um, you know, conductivity and, 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 and all this other stuff, you, you know, I, I just wonder what we have, what we're not seeing now coming down the, the future, you know, as we, we look towards, I mean, I, I didn't see any of this conductivity stuff happening 15, 20 years ago. I don't know if you did, but I, I didn't see it. I, I wonder what it will be like for us in the air, in the super premium part of, either business jet or first-class cabins in, 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 in 15 years. There, there might be stuff out there that we just don't know about. Anyway. Uh, thank you. Uh, from the point of view of commercial flight, if you go from Mach 0.8 to Mach 1.4, you might cut the flight time by about 40% or so. But that's only part of the travel time. You've got to get to the airport. And even if we ignore TSA and security and all that, you've got to get the baggage loaded onto the aircraft. You've got to get the aircraft out onto the runway. And then when you get to the other end, especially transatlantic, you've got to get the baggage off the aircraft, go through customs, go through immigration, and then get from the airport. So if you're lucky, you might cut your trip by as much as 30%. Uh, is that really worth the extra cost? Yeah, that's just a great question. And also, I think it complicates Bill's question about, um, you know, greater utilization, fast, you know, just getting from point A, just, you know, it, it really does. Door-to-door -door time is radically different. Now, 1.4 is just the Arion product. Boom promises 2.2. We'll see again. Um, 
the other problem is windows. You know, you might get faster to Heathrow or 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 you know or, or, or Tokyo or, or you know whatever, um, only to find that you can't turn around quickly because it's three a.m. <laughs> In other words, we have airline schedules that are fiendishly complicated by when you can access airports, not just because of noise regs, but because of when people want to fly and whatever else. So, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, well, many years ago, 15 years ago, Boeing had a program called the Sonic Cruiser, which Airbus quickly de uh, designated Chronic Snoozer. And it was, um, it, it promised, you know, Mach 9.8, and you're just sort of wearing that very fluttery transonic part of the regime. And the more you looked at it, the more you realized it did absolutely nothing for utilization. Uh, so, there are so many complications uh, to um, the speed value equa equation, as you're saying. Absolutely. I'm taking your point about connectivity to its logical conclusion. Um, do you see a, a, a tipping point that might change the structure of the market? You say the cream of business class travel is funding coach, right? Um, well, does connectivity lead uh, ineluctably to some kind of dramatic decline in business travel? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's, that to me is fascinating um, because the FAA did all sorts of studies on that in the 90s, as did uh, various consultancies. And we were virtually certain that this greater connectivity would reduce. It was taken for granted circa 1994. Uh, here we are 24 years later, and uh, actually, I'm very happy to say we see the opposite effect. And maybe it gets back to your point earlier uh, on about um, maybe just greater connectivity is a stimulus to greater connectivity, <laughs> global trade, world travel, any of these things. That's my hope. Now, but you also use the term tipping point, which makes me scared. Uh, it could be to the, maybe there is this point where we have this sort of real, instant connectivity coupled with hologram meeting rooms. And anyone who's been in a, a virtual environment, we've all experienced some degree of virtual or augmented reality, but imagine if that's scaled up and instant and global, that scares me as a potential tipping point. I mean, it really does. In other words, so far, the data doesn't show it at all, but it could be because we haven't gotten to something that really does threaten that, uh, that, that the cream of business travel. I would I would add that uh, that would mean changing cultures a lot of the time. So uh, one of my friends works for a Japanese company, and while she doesn't necessarily need to go uh, to Japan all the time, they want in-the-face meetings, right? So she often finds herself on a jet there. Uh, there will always be this presumption, um, and this may change, but in my opinion, uh, at least in my generation, there will be a presumption that you want to meet face-to-face, -face, uh, depending on how sensitive the, the topic is or, or what we're dealing with, especially in, um, when you take into account privacy and cybersecurity concerns. Okay. We probably have time for one more question. Apparently, you guys are very thorough. Oh, Matt? Yeah, so just a, uh, a quick question on how much appetite is there among current lawmakers on getting this change through? Uh, what does the legislative landscape look like? Uh, and perhaps the correlate, right? Who, who are the, the enemies? Um, <laughs> uh, is it still uh, an environmental uh, lobbying issue or are there um, other interests at stake? Well, from what we've seen, um, one of the major allies is, is Mike Lee, 
uh, Senator Mike Lee, he, he uh, perf- uh, put forward an amendment um, that would lift the sub- subsonic ban, but, uh, or the supersonic ban. But um, in every one of the FAA reauthorization bills that I've seen has had an amendment added to it. So I think it is very likely in this Congress to pass, whether it is uh, by sep- September 30th or uh, is pushed out. Um, Chairman Thune said that they would get it through by the end of the year. Um, as opposed, uh, as for enemies, I haven't seen very many lawmakers out front in front of the issue saying we shouldn't do this. Um, in part because it's it's you know it's a baby steps. It's a plan for the FAA to create a a more logical plan around this type of technology, uh, and so it's primarily been about. Uh, environmentalists saying we shouldn't invest, like even even when they have said, they have voiced opposition, it has been primarily aimed at investors within the technology. So they go after like Richard Branson for saying, for giving money to uh, one of the airline, the air framers for creating the technology rather than a full stop on the on, on, on resurrecting this, this type of technology. Um, I'm very optimistic. We'll give uh, Alan and Richard a round of applause for those for your panel.